Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of my podcast. I want to start out by shouting out John Sinton and all the good people at Progressive Voices. They've added this podcast to their stellar list of radio shows and podcasts, and I'm proud to be a part of their family. You know, to be honest, I wondered if the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would take place without incident. You know, we were hearing a whole bunch of different things about people coming to the inauguration and trying to storm uh, the Capitol yet again. Thank God none of that happened. And the inauguration was, in fact, one for the ages. The coronavirus pandemic and the January 6th riot at the Capitol framed the proceedings as both different and much more intense than any in recent memory. I watched as the world waited for Donald Trump to leave the White House, and the longer it took, the more anxious I became. And then, finally, it happened, and America was able to move forward. More on where we may be headed in a minute, but first, there's something that's been bothering me for quite a while lately. The right wing has adopted the phrase cancel culture to mean anyone or anything that calls out something they disagree with. They also use the phrase woke culture to mean essentially the same thing. As is often the case with the right, they misuse both phrases to smear, for example, people who fight white supremacy, police brutality, or other ills that plague communities of color. In fact, the other day, uh, when Joe Biden mentioned white supremacy during his inaugural speech, numbers of right-wing commentators jumped up and berated him for using the term as if it applied to them. And I say, if the shoe fits. It's easier, though, for a lot of these people to use a tired phrase like cancel culture than to actually examine the problem of white supremacy, examine the problem of police brutality, or examine virtually any other problem that progressives may articulate. Well, there's another culture, I think, that needs to be amplified and examined. It's called grievance culture, and its apex was that ugly storming of the Capitol. It's not enough that 75 million people decided to vote for a con man. Their problems and grievances haven't been heard. Trump himself was the paramount practitioner of grievance culture, and he started, and this is important, he started well before he lost the election on November 3rd of last year. News media that didn't conform to his worldview were branded enemies of the people. The pandemic has festered in this country through absolutely no fault of his, and his followers were right behind him. The erosion of primacy that some white people have felt is the responsibility of them. And who is them, you might ask? Blacks, Latinos, immigrants, the poor, the homeless, you know, them. Those who feel aggrieved must have someone to blame it on. And this is not new, ladies and gentlemen. People have been blaming other people for their perceived problems since mankind first started walking the earth. It's always attributable to them. My problem is very simply this. If Donald Trump was such a wonderful president for the last four years, how come they still have grievances? I mean, it, 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 you know, he created the greatest economy 
in the history of the world, and people are still screaming and obviously grieving about the fact that they're not making, I assume, the money that they should be making, according, of course, to them. But if anything, Donald Trump's presidency gave voice to a last desperate attempt to stop the clock on the inevitable demographic changes these people see coming. And what's interesting about this to me is that they see it coming, in some cases, faster and with more clarity than Democrats or progressives. And make no mistake, this grievance culture will outlast Donald Trump and every single enabler. These folks will continue to enable people like Donald Trump. And the grievous culture will survive Trump and survive all of them. How do you fight this culture, you might ask? I think Joe Biden has already begun trying to move in a different direction. I've said before that his best chance at making a lasting impact is to do the most good for the most people as quickly as possible. Getting additional stimulus checks into the hands of Americans is a good way to start, and he's pledged to do that. Accelerating and centralizing the distribution of coronavirus vaccines is also at the top of his to-do list. If COVID-19 can be slowed or stopped during 2021, it will be the Biden's administration's work that will get it done. This is especially true now that reports say the previous administration had no plans at all to distribute the coronavirus vaccine. And that's not all the former grifter in chief left behind. I saw this story and I absolutely could not believe it. Two Haitian brothers, one of them nine years old, were separated by immigration authorities at San Francisco airport last weekend. They both reportedly had valid visas. The older brother was deported first to Mexico and then to the Dominican Republic while the nine-year-old was taken to a facility in Southern California. This is a direct result of Trump administration policies that separates families and was fashioned by advisor Stephen Miller, a lowlife if there ever was one. And trust me, I don't use the term lowlife lightly. Miller apparently decided sometime in his life that there were too many immigrants in America. Whether they were legal or not did not concern him. His attitudes, reflected in Trump policy, led directly to two young people who apparently had every right to be here treated like common criminals, which neither are. While there are many items of grave importance to be addressed by the new administration, I think Joe Biden ought to reach out in this one case and make it right. This is not, as the right wing might say, about open borders. It's about being human and recognizing that mistakes can have grave consequences, grave consequences. It might also have the unintended consequence of quieting down some of Biden's detractors on the left who made their feelings known in cities like Portland and Seattle. And I have to say, starting out burning and trying to loot or whatever in those cities was not a smart move. It is, to me, a fringe move. 
And I think that at a point, you know, trying to do in capital cities on the West Coast what those lunatics tried to do in D.C. was just simply not smart. Long story short, it's going to take more than a week or two to undo four years of gross incompetence. Up next, I've talked before about the simmering animosity between the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party. Since the Republicans are at open war with each other, why can't the Democrats take advantage? Too much to ask? Really? This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. That's Mark Riley Media on Facebook. It goes without saying that the 2020 election and its aftermath has had a profound effect on both major political parties. And I say major, the Republicans and Democrats. Certainly, the GOP seems to be imploding what with recriminations by those who continue to drink the Trump Kool-Aid, even to the point where Trump has talked about forming a third political party, which, by the way, would not necessarily be a bad thing for the Democrats. But be that as it may, I don't see that as necessarily happening. What they seem to be trying to do, those supporters and enablers of the just-disposed president, former president, perhaps I should say, is to try and really maintain an iron grip on the Republican Party. They're doing this in a number of different ways, including challenging uh, and threatening to challenge through primaries anyone who voted to A, certify the results of the 2020 election, and B, anyone who might potentially or did in the House of Representatives vote in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. Now, as far as the results of the election are concerned, anybody, and I emphasize, anybody who is continuing this farcical nonsense about Trump actually won the election, and by the way, this has gotten to the point where he uh, tried, apparently, to have someone replace his acting attorney general because the acting attorney general would not act on Trump's stated desire to have the election results overturned. And by the way, if you overturn those election results, for those of you who haven't been following this, that means millions upon millions of voters in states all across America would have been disenfranchised. And where would they have been disenfranchised? Cities like Pittsburgh, cities like Philadelphia, cities like Phoenix, Arizona, cities like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
These are the cities, and Atlanta, Georgia, certainly. These are the cities where people would have been disenfranchised if the Trumpsters had their way. But you know what? Enough about them. Let them implode. Let them do whatever it is that they're going to do. More important to me is creating some form of unity among Democrats. You remember them, Democrats, they won the election. Right now, there appears to be a rift between moderate centrist members of the party and the progressive wing. This is not new. The obvious danger in not finding common ground is exactly what's happening on the other side of the aisle, where centrist Democrats and progressive Democrats end up at each other's throats and no Democrats, and when I say Democrats, I'm talking about rank and file Democrats, benefit from this open warfare. Now, the important place I think to start is whether the positions on both sides are irreconcilable. I believe the short answer to that question is no, they're not. This is despite the fact that I personally tend to favor the progressives. I mean, that's just who I am. It's in my DNA. However, being progressive does not blind me to the faults of the progressive movement. My first question is this. Despite the fact that progressives bill themselves as representing issues and policy positions of working poor people, I am not always sure they do. How often do progressives reach out and actually listen to the working poor? Some of them do. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, went after the inauguration of Joe Biden to stand with union workers at the Hunts Point Market in the Bronx. And I believe they got what they were looking for, but she stood with them. She stood with working people. She got it. She understands. But I'm not sure that all other progressives do. Why would I say this? Because I think there are times when progressives have a tendency to take working poor people for granted. Oh, yeah, well, you guys are with us. You know, you work hard, you're poor, you're worried about health care and education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so are we. Therefore, you're one of us. And no more work actually needs to be done. I believe that is a serious fault of some. It's not all progressives. Don't get me wrong and please don't be insulted. I'm just saying there are some progressives that are not ready to do the work of going out and listening to working poor people. And by the way, when I talk about working poor people, I am not just talking about voters. There are hundreds of thousands of people across America who for one reason or another are not eligible to vote. I'm well aware that most politicians tend to look right past people who can't vote for them. I had a guy tell me once long, long time ago, it was one of the hard political lessons I learned. He said, look, if you say you're not voting for me, or if you are not eligible to vote, I don't want to talk to you. I have nothing to say to you. And that's a political lesson that I think ran through the politics of that particular era. And I'm going back now to the 1980s and early 1990s. I am not a politician. I believe the true measure of a, of a progressive is the extent to which they listen to a wide array and a wide variety of voices. 
One example, to a single mother living in public housing in New York City, climate change may represent whether she can spend an entire winter without having to worry about not having heat and hot water. That's right. A couple of years ago, 400,000 people who lived in public housing in New York City went at least one 24-hour period without heat and hot water. Now, this is a city that is represented by a progressive mayor. And yet, that yawning gap of a problem existed. What real plans beyond that do progressives have to put people back to work? And again, I know that there are some, you know, Bernie Sanders is a prime example of a guy, and I've talked to him a number of times in the past. He understands. He understands that working people are the backbone of the country and that their voices need to be heard. You know, you have all these Trumpsters that say they're not being listened to. Well, who the hell's listening to the working poor? Who is talking about educating their kids? Who's talking about making sure they have quality health care? And I say this to say that, you know, progressives oftentimes get into long, drawn-out arguments about which is better. Uh, is it uh, a public option or is it uh, Medicare for all? Let me tell you something. Working poor people don't put those labels on health care. They don't. What they're concerned about is if their kid has asthma, are they going to be able to get it treated and treated without bankrupting them? That's what they're worried about. Are their kids going to be able at a point to go through school? And certainly during the course of this pandemic, they're worried about whether or not a vaccine is going to cost them an arm and a leg. They don't know. And someone needs to say to them, no. It's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. In fact, no, in my judgment, it shouldn't cost you anything. To me, that is a progressive position. Don't get me wrong, however, moderates have to answer the very same questions and do a better job than they have in the past. They will have to concede that, yes, progressives do, in fact, have good ideas and stop trying to demonize them every time certain election results don't go the way of the moderates. You see, there is, quiet as it's kept, a rolling thunder of progressives that are winning election in various states. And some of the moderates, some of the centrists, who, by the way, were replaced by progressives, don't like it much. I understand that. But you see, being a centrist, being a go-along-to-get-along politician is not necessarily going to be availing. Remember, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez toppled the number four guy in the House of Representatives, Joe Crowley, a guy who had been in office for a long, long time and who, to an extent, personified centrism. And... You see, using tired catchphrases to demonize people does not do centrists or progressives, for that matter, any good at all. 
And I think that centrist Democrats are going to have to stand up and say, you know what? Later for all y'all talking about socialism, later for y'all talking about open borders, because they tried to tar Joe Biden with this stuff. And Biden was the last person on earth, last person on earth that should have been tied to these ideas. The other part of it is, you know, people need to stop demonizing these phrases or words. Most people who talk bad about socialism don't realize that to an extent they may be the beneficiaries of socialism. I was absolutely amazed. I watched uh, someone, uh, forgive me, I can't remember his name now, doing interviews with people at a Trump rally and asking them the simple question, do you have a problem with the government running Medicare? And to a person, they all said yes. You know, the government's got no business running Medicare, not knowing that Medicare is, in fact, a government program. That's right, a government program. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people tend not to know this stuff. It has to do with the media they consume. It has to do with, uh, you know, attitudes that they have that the media they consume reinforces for them. Like, for example, Trump won the election. That There's a prime example of people kind of having an echo chamber and listening to those echoes that conform to their own viewpoints. But one of the issues, and again, let's go back to the Democrats here. One of the issues that keep progressives and moderates at each other's throats is the question of primaries, particularly in New York. And, and forgive me for continuing to refer to New York, but I know the politics in New York because I covered it for a very long time. And some things do not change. In New York, if you win a Democratic primary, in most cases, you're going to win election. The November election ends up being a mere formality. Now, that's not true in all cases. Staten Island, uh, one of the boroughs of New York, is a place where Republicans have a real good chance. Max Rose, who was a Democrat who represented Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn, got dumped by a Republican for a House race. So, yes, there are instances where Republicans can do well in a general election. But generally speaking, when you're talking about the state legislature, who will take on a great deal of significance as the district lines are drawn, most people don't even know that. They don't know that it is, in fact, the state legislatures that draw district lines for Congress and for the State Assembly and for the State Senate. They don't know because they're not told. And the fact is that centrist, moderate Democrats don't always care for insurgent progressives going after their seats. I, for one, believe that primaries are part of the democratic process. And unless people want to change that, and they have changed it to an extent with ranked choice voting, and we'll get into that in a subsequent episode. But the fact of the matter is, this is the system you got. And if people want to run for office, I believe they ought to be encouraged to run for office. There's, I don't know how many people running for New York City mayor, uh, which will be adjudicated later on this year. There's a lot of different offices 
that people can run for. And I don't think there's anything wrong with progressives keeping moderates on their toes, or for that matter, with moderates keeping progressives on their toes. And, you know, moderates have won their share against insurgent progressive opponents. So, you know, it's not all in one direction, all one tide. There is no, by the way, and this is why I don't have a problem with primaries. Uh, there's no inherent right to a political office. And in some cases, primaries have the effect of, in fact, forcing incumbents to take positions they might otherwise avoid. When that work is done, however, Democrats need to close ranks and learn from the chaos of the Republicans. Because, of course, the end game is to win. Our final segment deals with the passing of two giants, two icons, Hank Aaron and Larry King. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Hammer and Hank. He was a giant of a man, and he passed away the other day at the age of 86. I could fill this space with his place in baseball's record books, but the day everyone will remember in Hank Aaron's career was April 8, 1974. That's the day he hit his 715th home run, eclipsing the record set by Babe Ruth. His pursuit of that record made him a target of white racism. How dare a black man born and raised in the segregated South challenge a white icon like the babe? Yet challenge he did, challenge and conquer. Hank Aaron was the victim of the ugliest racist hate mail this side of Martin Luther King. He kept many of those letters, a reminder of baseball's dark side. Yet Hank Aaron stared white supremacy down and white supremacy blinked. And looking at Facebook posts and comments in the wake of his passing, I'm struck how many people, just plain folks, had interacted with him through the years. Whether it was at a gaming table in Vegas or at a restaurant in L.A. or Atlanta or New York, every single post mentioned that he was approachable, what had become, I guess, what some call the common touch that he had. This from a man who was a baseball all-star every year from 1955 through 1975. That's 21 years an all-star. Even people who don't follow baseball have to be impressed with that. He was inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1982. And, you know, I keep coming back to hearing fellow Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson saying, there's the Hall of Fame and then there's Hank Aaron. The other icon we lost was Larry King, radio and TV personality extraordinaire who died at the age of 87. 
Like Hank Aaron, Larry King was a Hall of Famer. In his case, the Broadcasters Hall of Fame. His syndicated radio show, which began in 1978, was the template for a generation of talk show hosts. He also hosted Larry King Live on CNN. My Larry King moment came while listening to him late at night in the early 1980s. A guy called in and began, began to spout racist gibberish. To my surprise, I guess, Larry King cut him off both firmly and unequivocally, telling him racism had no place on his program and to never call him back. I was struck by the fire in this man's voice. For a long time, I thought I was the only person in black radio who listened to and enjoyed Larry King. I later found out that a large number of my colleagues were also fans of his and had their pictures taken with him. Guess a lot of us were awake late at night back in the day. All of the stuff about his marriages and this and that, no consequence to me. Larry King cut a path that many radio and TV people of all races listened to and followed. R.I.P. Hank Aaron and Larry King, two lives certainly well lived. The executive producer of The Intersection is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music was performed by Otis McDonald, the Vienna Philharmonic, Eric Lund, and Zach. You caught me at hello, wanna make you my all, but you kept me waiting, girl, really wanna take you home, and I can see it.